would say tonight is that would any please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Now, we're looking at a man originally named Herod, <coughs> excuse me, named Herod the Great. He isn't great because he's so lovable or cuddly or big or large or because he's so anything along those lines. But to be honest, what makes Herod the Great, of course, was how great his building projects were, of which three we've kind of focused on in the last uh, few months, or I should say last month, and that is, of course, the area, the temple in Jerusalem, the palace and city of Antipatris, and then the area of the port of Caesarea. Now, with what, for what it's worth, Herod, at least as far as we have dating, Herod dies in basically 4 BC. Now, that's really important because what Herod, the way we connect him to Scripture, is he's the guy that kills all those babies because he doesn't like the idea of a baby being born that would be king. Which tells me Jesus has to be born before 4 BC because Herod's trying to kill these people. Uh, because this baby's been born. So for what it's worth, so there's Herod the Great. Herod the Great has a bunch of kids. As a matter of fact, for what it's worth, he has at least ten boys from five different wives. He prefers, I assume, the name Maramna, because Mariamna, there's two different wives that he has with that name. A gal named Doris, a gal named Matris, by the way, the Samaritan, and then a gal named Cleopatra as well. Now, with all of these different wives, by the way, he has a bunch of different children. Now, understand, Herod was a real paranoid kind of guy. And because he was a real paranoid kind of guy, with the children that he had, if you were kind of bright and smart, and and understand, Herod had a little bit going on upstairs. I mean, he was smart enough to develop some pretty great building projects. And because of that, he he certainly was a bit smart. Now, that doesn't mean that he was wise with with that brilliance, you know. Now, when he had these kids, and because he was paranoid, who could possibly be greater successor to the throne than his own children. So at least three different children, clearly he has murdered. One of them he even strangles in, in, in 7 AD, and that's actually this boy over here, Aristobulus. Now, it had been said it had been safer to be in, in Herod's house a pig than a, than a wife or a child, one of his sons. Now, he, now, for what it's worth, through all of these women, he has one particular one from this man I'm not the first, and that's this guy, Aristobulus. Now, Aristobulus, you're not going to read in Scripture, but you are going to read about his son and grandson, and we'll talk about them in just a moment, and his daughter. Now, for, for, what it's worth, for what it's worth, just remember that one of these guys, this is the guy he sort of ships off to college prep or university prep school. The Ivy League in America is kind of the idea. This guy gets sent to Rome to learn how to do things politically. Are you with me so far? Okay, good. Four of you nodded. All right, that's a good start. Now, these three, on the other hand, we do have in Scripture. Achelaus, and then Antipas, and then we know him as Herod Philip. Now, these particular three are all, by the way, born from Malthus II, or this is a Malthus, the, the Samaritan, I'm sorry. And, and with it, the, this is how we know him. This guy, Achelaus, by the way, when Jesus, remember, because Herod tries to kill him, you know, tries to kill him when he was a baby, his parents and him flee to Egypt. Do you remember that? And then the the angel says, well, come on back now, Herod's dead. But as they're about to come back into Bethlehem, what happens is is that they learn that Herod's son Archelaus is reigning in his place, so they go up to Nazareth instead. Now, why is that important? Let me do it this way. Go and flip to the map for a second, if you would. Because Herod the Great was so brilliant and he tried to kill all of the sons that were any threat to him, that means that by the time the smoke cleared and dad was dead and you still lived, was that a compliment? I mean, if you were no threat to dad and you still lived, do you kind of get the idea? And by the way, by this point, Archelaus is already dead, but these other three boys. So what happens is nobody's smart enough to take all of Herod's property. So they have to break it up into four. And the, the word tetra, 
the idea of four. So the word for a leader, like arch, like archangel or architect, means your first or primary. So a tetrarch is somebody that rules or is the leader of one of those four areas. Does that make sense? So with that, three of those sons are given these areas. You have the guy up here that's Herod Philip. Um, he gets the area, by the way, of Caesarea Philippi. It was originally dedicated to Pan, Panas. He dedicates it to Caesar Philip. And in doing so, by the way, that's the area we know of as Caesarea Philippi, from which Jesus will say, who do men say that I am? That is up there. So that's in Philip's area. But that's not really what we know him for the most. What we know him for, I'll tell you a little bit in a moment. Um, there's another guy that has this area here, and that's the area along the area of Galilee as well. And that particular person is Herod Antipas. Now that guy we do know a lot in Scripture, and the reason we know a lot in Scripture is he's the Herod in Luke that Jesus has to stand before. The man, by the way, who has the dubious title of being the one for whom he, Jesus has nothing to say. Herod brings him before him because he had heard that Jesus had done miracles. He was real excited about it. He brings Jesus in. He says, so, you're the king of the Jews. Is that what you're saying? And he asks him all these questions. Jesus never even speaks to him. So that's Herod. That's this Herod. So that's the second. And then we have this guy who is Archelaus. Now, the people hated Archelaus so much. He was kind of a punk. But basically, when I do it as picture, I kind of do a picture of, you'll pardon me for saying, kind of a picture of George, of, of, uh, of, uh, Mike Tyson. I mean, the idea of somebody that's just kind of big and just lots of them. I'm just going to keep biting people in the ear and it's going to fight. Well, that was kind of the idea of Archelaus. As a matter of fact, in the Gospel of Luke, for what it's worth, Jesus tells this story, and I believe for what it's worth, it's in Luke 19, where he says that there was this man who went to go get his kingdom, but the people hated him so much, they said, we will not have this man rule over us. And then with that, ultimately, the guy does show up and he kills a lot of people. Well, ultimately, that was history as well, and the history of that was this guy Archelaus. By 6 AD, so he doesn't get long, he gets 10 years. By 6 AD, they're going to deport him out to Gaul, which is basically, for what it's worth, well, you can get it, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere by this time. So, let's go back for a moment to those guys. And let's just talk about the fractured family tree. And then we get into our text, because all of these guys are going to, or to some degree, they're going to play into this. So here's the deal. This guy, Aristobulus, has a son. Remember, that's the guy they sent to Rome? So you have this guy's in Rome. This guy had originally the area of Judea. This is the guy who had Galilee. And this is the guy who had north of Galilee. Now, ultimately, what happens is their brother, Aristobulus, has two children. One named Herod Agrippa. That guy we know fairly well. He's the guy that has the title of being the one for whom his body was eaten by worms and died in Scripture. Now, think about how'd you like that in Scripture? Oh, here's a guy. I mean, if this guy actually did believe in God as he was dying, he would be a really fun one to talk to in heaven. Oh, here's a guy that got eaten by worms. Okay, so he has that. So he has that son, and then he has a daughter named Herodias. Now, how do we know Herodias? Herodias winds up marrying Philip. Remember that? So she, if you think about it, what that means is she marries her uncle, Uncle Philip. And then what happens is she leaves Uncle Philip for Herod Antipas. For which, then, is the one that gets nailed. Remember how John the Baptist says it's not right that you should marry? So this little cutie has all kinds of fun in this fractured family tree of Herod. Because not only has she left Philip for Antipas, she is the one who has her daughter dance for, if you remember that, for, for dad, in essence, stepdad. For which, then... She, he says, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. She says, well, all I want is the head of John the Baptist. Well, that's, this little cutie's behind all of that. So, so that's all part of Herod's family line. Are you with me so far? This is just, this is like a daytime drama, isn't it? BBC should pick this up. All right, now with that, so this guy, when he gets eaten by worms and died, his son, Agrippa II, was only 17. 
Now, when all of that happens, we do know that these are the other two children Agrippa has. Now, this is really important because what will happen is, is that this Drusilla character, that one we know from last week. If you remember, she had been married twice. She, well, I should say she was engaged once, betrothed, but the guy wouldn't convert. So then she was betrothed again. She, he did convert, but then she left him for Felix. And Felix was the governor that we saw last week. So that was this particular cutie. So that's who she is. This gal here, on the other hand, was actually married twice as well. Didn't work out. First guy was rather abusive. Second guy was rather abusive. Now she's moved in with brother Agrippa. And by the way, according to all historians that seem to be even relatively conservative, they all tend to think that the two of them were kind of rather amorous. So to sum up this for a moment before we even get into our text, because some of our main characters are going to be these guys, by this point we're going to have Agrippa II step in. We're going to have the guy that replaces her husband, which remember was Felix, was a guy named Happy Pig, Festus, Porteous Festus. And Bernice is going to come with him. So you have kind of boyfriend, girlfriend, brother, sister, whatever you want to call that, showing up here in a moment. That's this. And then this is leaving for the guy that replaces him here, and his name again is Festus. That's kind of where we're at in all of this fractured family tree. Pretty, pretty. By the way, by the time we get to this guy, and he's our last guy that we're going to see, he is the last of the Idumean kings. He's the last of the Herodian dynasty, but he's also the last then of people with some form of Jewish background. And that's going to come really important into this. Now, in our text, by the way, for what it's worth, Paul was arrested in chapter 21, verse 26. And actually, he wasn't even arrested. He was just assaulted, if you remember. He was beat on hard there in the temple. By chapter 22, then, he turns on and addresses that. So this is his first, in essence, defense in Hebrew, and he gives his testimony. In chapter 23, then, after he's getting rescued by Lucius in all of this, ultimately what will happen is he'll address that counsel. As he addresses the council with Lucius, and that's the religious council, with Lucius, they have a plot to kill him. Remember how they won't eat and drink, and then it's, well, we won't eat. But either way, by this point, they're either dead or they've gone back on all that. And they have that plot to kill him, and so as a result, he gets sent to Caesarea. By chapter 24 now, he addresses Felix with the high priest, and Tertullus, their lawyer. So what we have then is Paul has given his defense before the people in 22, his defense before Lucius in chapter 23, his defense before Felix in chapter 24. In chapter 25, in essence, now he's going to have to give his defense to some degree before Festus. And then in chapter 26, he's going to have to give his defense before Agrippa II. Think about how many times he's had to stand up and do something. Now, in this, look at the last two verses of the chapter before, and let's dig in. It'll tell us that this man, Festus, who's now replacing Felix, who's on his way out, Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, had already decided to leave Paul in prison. There's a problem. There is no charge against this man. So this man is in prison with no legitimate charge. Matter of fact, even no charge whatsoever. Now, think about that for a second, because what you have then is you have the religious leadership there in in Jerusalem, who this guy is granting a favor to. Now comes the new guy. And the new guy's name here again, as we see in the last verse, is Porcius Festus. Two years take place now. For two years, Paul has been in prison. For nothing. For loving Jesus. And that takes us to our text now. Chapter 25, verse 1. And one thing, by the way, as we dig in, for, for for what you might want to know, Felix was known as the diplomat. 
Felix was known as the guy that was kind of a, we, you know, we kind of work things out through discussion. Festus, Porteous Festus, the guy who's now stepping in, is kind of known as the guy that's the rough and with the iron fist. In other words, it's kind of the good cop, bad cop. So Felix, the guy who just left, was the good cop. That was the guy who just left with his wife, Drusilla. On the other side of that, the bad cop steps in now, and he's kind of the guy that, that doesn't have a problem throttling you. And that's the guy we see here at the beginning, chapter 25, verse 1. Look at it with me. Now, when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up to Caesarea, to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in in ambush along the road to kill him. It's a change of government. And if you know anything about a change of government, two things are very clear. The first is, is that you can expect your allies to schmooze. In other words, let's just say that, well, sooner or later, and I certainly am not in, expect, you know, anticipating with any great pleasure, there will be a day when the crown will go to a man here in this country if the Lord tarries. During that time... All who are in allegiance with the UK will take a trip here. I guarantee you, or at least send an ambassador on their stead to just kind of make sure that there's some form of relationship now with the new person. Now, if you're rather literally smart, you're probably already doing that. But you can expect that in the change of leadership. The second thing is that you can expect then those who are your enemies to try to check and see if there are new, any new holes in the armor. It is traditional that that's the time to strike because that's the time when the new guy really doesn't have his hand on all of the buttons yet. He doesn't know how to work things really, really well. Do you kind of get that? Now, it's important to note, and this country is a really good example of this, there was a text as we were praising the Lord for his promises that this country is such a beautiful example of why that verse is so important. When it tells us that his word remains forever, and I believe it was Marcy who made that testimony, that his word remains forever. Now, think about that for a second, because it's more than just that when God said something that, you know, Jesus wept, we'll read it in Scripture, and we can still read it up in heaven. Because that's not the point. In this country, with every new government comes a new batch of laws that may be even totally opposite of the ones prior. Have you noticed that? It seems like almost no law is necessarily safe forever here. That is, when a new government comes, they can just say, nope, we disagree with that. We're going to start with something completely opposite of that, and there's a whole new set of laws. They don't stand. The same thing if you remember with Joseph back in the book of Genesis where it says that when after this Pharaoh, a new Pharaoh rose who did not know Joseph. It wasn't like he had been, hadn't been introduced. He refused to acknowledge the position Joseph was in because he was a whole new dynasty. But the Lord, his word endures forever. No matter what government comes on earth, no matter what change of anything, the bottom line is, if God has declared you his son, if he has adopted you, there is no change of anything that could possibly ever happen to change his mind or change his verdict because his verdict stands forever because his word remains forever. Isn't that beautiful? 
And that's the idea. When everything else is changing, he isn't. Now, on the other side of it, looking at this now, understand, this is the moment now where the guys come in. So what happens here is, is that now we've got the new guy. Happy Pig's his name. How's that for a name, Fortius Festus? Strange name for a guy that would beat you up. You know, but maybe if you grew up with a name like that, you'd be fighting people too. So as he kind of comes in, some people are going to come visit. By the next, by the end of this chapter, that's what we're going to see is Agrippa is going to come in now. And Agrippa, by the way, the Agrippa the first, he actually was the last guy that actually ruled. In other words, you had Herod the Great. He had all of these splinters. One of these guys comes over here. He actually unites the empire again, Herod Agrippa the first. And then, remember, he's the one who's eaten by worms and died, and then it splinters off again. So now we're here with the last guy, that's Agrippa II. He's going to come and visit him and kind of make sure that everything's okay. That's kind of happening. So while all of this is happening, this new guy gets the throne. And now, think about this. There are certain places, if you were sort of a Roman or for any matter, a politician, there are certain boroughs you might not want to get, certain districts you might not want to oversee, because you just kind of know they have a reputation for really making a politician look bad. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? But none of them could be worse than Jerusalem and Judea. And the reason is, is because you had these people who were so devout in their religion that you couldn't possibly change their mind. To be honest, the closest comparison we have today is if there were people trying to rule the world, would be to something that was extremely, completely, fundamentally Muslim. With the idea is that these guys would rather die than transgress, to even speak against their, their laws or whatever. Well, that's how devoted the Jewish people were 2,000 years ago. So you got a guy who's Roman, and to give you an idea what this was like, Felix, remember, Felix was kind of the diplomat. And now all of a sudden, in steps, in steps Festus. Well, during this time, he actually builds an addition onto his house with a big tower that could see into the, the temple. Well, the Jewish people hate that so much, they build a wall in front of it. And with that, then he demands that it be torn down. The people, the Jewish people, appeal to Caesar, who at this point now is Nero, and Nero sides with the Jewish people. In other words, he kind of cut off Festus's legs. You can get an idea. This is kind of a rough thing. Now, all of this, you've got this political prisoner, but here's the crazy part. Don't miss this. Here you are. You've just inherited an area you know the people could blow up at any given moment. That's just that's the way it is. Now, maybe you know family. Imagine being you are a policeman who walks the beat, but you're in an area where you know that there's serious sort of internal tumult in several of the places, and you don't even want to go. I mean, you hear a noise. You wish that that wasn't in your borough. Well, now all of a sudden he comes in, and so he wants to meet with the religious leaders, and he wants to kind of see what they're about. Now, understand, this guy isn't Jewish. Now, Agrippa, remember, he comes from that Edomian background, but this guy isn't. This guy's just a politician. So he's got to figure out, this is his idea, this is what he's going to, what's Judaism about? Well, he's about to meet with the best representatives, the leaders of the Jewish people. Should there not be a better example of what their religion should be than these guys? Are you with me on that? Okay, here's where it gets wild, ready? So he sits down, and he's like, so imagine he's having kind of a powwow with them, a think tank. Tell me, tell me about it. And, and it tells us, according to scripture, it says the first thing they want to talk about. Look at it with me in scripture. Look at verses 2 through 4. The first thing in scripture is like, so what is this Judaism? What is this thing? And they go, well, let's get to the nitty and the gritty. There's this guy in prison. And if you get him out, we'll kill him. That's the beginning of his understanding of Judaism. Could you understand how rough it must be to think, well, man, this can't be easy. How, well, how rough is it, Felix? No, no, you really want to, you're going to have a hard time ruling these people. 
Why? Well, because they've just got, they've kind of got this thing going on and it's kind of like the mob and, well, oh, come on, it can't be that bad. Come on, I'm a tough guy. We'll, we'll work it out. And he sits down and the first thing they're like, hey, so if you, if you can get them, look, you don't have to, if you could just take them to, take them to Jerusalem, we'll whack them in the way. And according to the text in the original language, this isn't like, that's like a side that God gives us. It isn't like, like, can you just send them to Jerusalem? We have some questions we like to ask them. And then God's like, oh, by the way, they were waiting to kill him. According to the text in the language, it's actually like that's what they tell the guy. So imagine, here you are, Festus, and you're sitting down with these religious leaders. And the religious leaders go, okay, before we even talk about any of our things, our dogmas, and well, the first thing you need to know is we want to kill this guy that's in prison. Could you imagine that's the first thing that they understand about that religion? Well, let me ask you. What's the first thing people know about Christianity? Is it what we stand against? No, I agree. There are things we're going to disagree with. But if what we're known for, first and foremost, is what we stand against, then why would they ever want to join our club? Unless they're the kind that shouldn't want to join our club. You know, the kind of guy that would really like to blow up someone or shoot someone or whatever. If that's all we're known for, is what we hate instead of who we love. But it isn't like the anti-enemy. That's not what we're called. We're called Christianity because we're about the Christ. Without Jesus dying on the cross, we would be just as rotten making the same choices. As a matter of fact, there are people who have actually accepted Christ who are still making those dumb choices. And this particular guy that wants to rule with an iron fist, the first thing he knows is that they rule the roost, and if you disagree... That's the idea. What kind of religion is that? Unfortunately, it's like a lot of things today. And it's very much a lot like Islam today in some parts of the world. And the reason I say that is because of a very good friend of ours now, that man Saeed. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with what's going on with him, but as of the most recent news, he sent a detailed letter to his wife of the torture that he's receiving. Actually, to his family there in Iran, because that's who they allowed it to. It just gets leaked elsewhere. And then now he's been handed to a specific judge that's known for hanging people who have removed themselves from Islam. So in a moment, we're going to dedicate ourselves to, to praying for him. Again, his name is Saeed, um, for what that's worth. Now, back in our text, here's how this begins. So, look at what it says in verse 3. Asking a favor against him that they would... No, don't miss that. Remember how when Festus... Um, now, when Felix left, he left Paul in prison to do them a favor. So he meets them. Imagine you meet a group, group of people and the first thing they say is, can you do me a favor? What, what kind of attitude do you get at that? You know, you know, by the way, we get that just about everywhere we walk. There's some guy out there pumping for a pound, isn't he? And he's like, hey, nice to meet you. Can you do me a favor? And you're like, who are you? Well, understand, these people are in a position now, and don't miss this, they feel like they have a right to expect from that government. Don't miss that, because that's going to become our theme for this whole chapter here in a minute. These people now believe that the government's right. And by the way, this government is a tyranny. This government wasn't like a democracy. People didn't vote the Roman Empire into office. They took it by force. But at this point, they kind of feel like they have political pull. I mean, after what they've been able to do to sort of twist Pilate around back in the 30s, now we're 20 years later, imagine they really think that they have some form of influence. Festus says, this is his response. Remember, he's the tough guy. Verse 4, look at it with me. Festus answered that Paul should be kept in Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore he said, 
Let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. So when they had remained with them more than ten days, so this man that now takes office has spent at least 11 days in Jerusalem because more than 10 starts at 11. You kind of got that, right? He went down to Caesarea. Why down? Because Jerusalem is up on a hill. No matter where you're at, you go up to Jerusalem. That's the idea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought in. Now understand, the the judgment seat is the place for which death penalties are pronounced. Now, the idea is quite simple. This man, Festus, has sat in the place so that you know who's in charge. There's no question who the governor is at this moment. He's the guy sitting in the judgment seat. So when Paul had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, saying, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, Nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. Now notice Paul makes clear that the accusation is threefold. What the Jews are saying, first of all, is that Paul is speaking against the law. The second is that Paul has done things against the temple. And the third is that Paul is just outright against Caesar. Ironic because these particular religious leaders have broken all three. They've broken the law by the type of trial that they're trying to give Paul, where it's already guilty. They've broken and they've actually... um, defiled the temple by actually seeking to kill a Jewish person in the temple precinct. And third, they've been breaking the law of Caesar by doing this whole thing, by plotting to kill this guy if he would just take him to Jerusalem. They're breaking all of the laws they're actually accusing Paul of. Now, don't miss this. Paul is completely innocent. And though he's completely innocent, and here comes our theme for the whole chapter, and that is the diversion, listen please, the diversion of justice. And what I mean by that is quite simple. Within each of us is this sense that things should be fair. And what happens is we decide what's fair and what's not. I mean, when you're a kid, you will blow your top if you think that something isn't fair. You have two kids, they both seem to have done the same thing. You give one kid one piece of candy, you give another one two pieces of candy, the first one hits the floor in some because that's just not fair. By the time you hit about 12 or 13 these days, thanks to Disney, maybe a little earlier, all kinds of things get warped. And now things get changed from now just a sense of fairness to a sense of entitlement. And now when you're entitled now, everybody's supposed to serve you. Have you noticed that? It's like the world owes you something. The world owes you something. The government owes you something. The school district owes you something. The government, the the neighborhood owes you something. And darn it, if you go to the library, they owe you that book better be there. And if you go to the store, that thing better be in that you want. And don't even try to go on iTunes and tell me that that thing's not there. I'm not going to wait until there's a release date. I deserve it now. I can't even wait. If it tells me I look on something and it says microwave for 45 seconds and I think, 45 seconds? What am I going to do while I'm waiting? Because we're entitled now. But here's the problem. That's exactly where the religious leaders were. Do you see that? The religious leaders are saying, look, at, we are entitled to a favor. This guy, I mean, think of the chutzpah. This guy's supposed to be the guy in charge. He's like, hi, nice to meet you. Hi, can you do me a favor? We want to kill this guy. That's how this starts? Think of the strange entitlement that's there. Now, here's the, th- here's the deal. Somewhere down the line, I got saved. I accepted the gift of Jesus Christ. And that becomes a really rough thing for the sense of justice. And I'll tell you why. Because if I look at Jesus' trial... 
It was the most unjust, unfair mistrial that ever existed, ever. He was completely and absolutely innocent, on all counts innocent, and yet treated like the guiltiest of people. And I can look and go, that's not fair, that's not fair. And he turns and he says, mark that in your heart. Mark that in your heart. Don't forget this, because there's another trial that's going to be in completely just as unfair, but on the good side of that. And that is the one where a completely guilty person like you or me stands before God completely innocent because a completely innocent God stood before man as a completely guilty person. Did you get that? Because Jesus took all that guilt, though he deserved none of it, I could actually take all the grace that I could not deserve anyway, so it wouldn't be grace because he already paid for it. That's the weird part. Okay, now, I get that eternally. Do you get that part? Here's where the problem is that I have to live a life here until that time that I stand before the Lord. And in that time between, things aren't going to be fair. And there's a part of me that goes, I want my rights. I want to fight for it. And Jesus goes, let me just make something really clear. I'm going to use terms like bondservant now. What's that? That's a slave. I don't like that term. But could you imagine a bunch of slaves getting together and go, we demand our rights. I'm like, you didn't get a right. You're a slave. Now, I'm not telling you that's a good thing. I'm telling you, though, that as we, though, made the choice to actually submit ourselves to Jesus Christ, what rights do we have? Jesus is like, let me tell you what you're entitled to. You're entitled to hell. That's what you have earned. And if you really want to cash that in, that's your choice. I died so you didn't have to. Everything else, listen, everything else, is that's, anything that's good is grace. It's grace. And if it's grace, none of us will ever deserve it. Please don't miss that. So here's the problem. Look at what we're looking at with Saeed. Look at what we're looking at with Paul. Paul's been in prison for two years. He's done nothing to deserve it. And at a moment like that, think about how mental you could go, how bitter you could get, how angry you could become, and you get so whacked out on this that you miss because you're so diverted by the sense of justice that you forget that you are a recipient of grace. But let me tell you what, Paul didn't lose it. And I tell you how I know. Because every time that Paul stands up at a moment like this, He preaches Jesus, which tells me that he's not consumed with trying to make this fair. Man, if I could just convince you I'm innocent, then I could then I could be treated right. Excuse me, Paul's like, look, you know what? If I have to die, and Paul will even say, look, it, you know, I don't mind dying if I'm guilty for it. I'd really like to not be punished for something I haven't done. But on the other side of it, by the time this thing gets done, every one of them says he just keeps talking about this guy Jesus, and that's what happens if I stop focusing on what I think I have a right to. Because if I focus on what I have a right to, let me tell you what it'll do. It'll destroy a marriage. It'll ruin a ministry. It'll make me no friend to anyone. Imagine if every person that they meet, we all meet, and we decide we're all going to be friends. But the problem is I keep looking and going, let me tell you what I'm entitled to as you as my friends. The problem is you may be thinking the same thing. So what happens is I'm entitled for you to call me first. Well, you're entitled for me to call you first. So we both sit at our phone. Neither one calls, and we're angry at each other because neither of us called. See how that worked? Because we were entitled to that. But as a bond slave of Christ, we don't do that because we don't look for a sense of justice. We don't score keep. You know, I've done this four times. You've done it twice. I'm better than you. You, you know, you owe me. My sister, for whatever reason, I have a twin sister. As we were growing up, she was a big back rub girl. She still owes me. I mean, it's she owes me TVs. She owes me cars. She owes me houses. You know, that kind of thing. No, 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 really. If you give me one more back rub, I'll give you a house. Like like my sister's ever, you know, I'm not, I'm not asking her to cash it in. I could tell you I've forgotten about it, but how could it be if 
I'm using it as an example. Now, now, now look at this with me because the text is going to go rather quick because it's rather narrative. But I want you to kind of get the gist in this because I really believe the Lord's called us in here for this purpose tonight. Is what is it right now you might be holding on to that you think this is unfair and I'm going to hold on to it because it's not fair and I'm going to shake this in their face and I'm going to go look at you, don't you realize? And in the end of it all, what am I doing? Could you imagine if the Lord chose to do that with us? That fist would never stop shaking in my face. The enemy tries to do that, and I ignore that because I know that's condemnation. But in the end of it all, he doesn't have to lie. He can grab things I do all day and shake it in my face. And the reason I say that is Jesus says, look at, well, if your brother, listen, doesn't just sin. If your brother sins against you, that's worse. So what, if you like seven times? It's pretty good, huh? You're on six, hypothetically, and you're not on any of them. We don't have, you know, you've not done that. You're on six. But here's the ironic thing. If you genuinely forgive someone, that means to cast away and abandon, you never get to two. Because if you've done something, and I cast it away, and you do that again, it's still number one, because I cast the first one away. It doesn't exist anymore. Do you get that? So I don't go, can you imagine me saying, look at you, I just want you to know, I've totally forgiven you, but that's number two. Excuse me, how could you totally forgive me and make that number two? That doesn't work. I want you to know I've abandoned that. I've, you know, I've totally forgotten about it, but this is the second time. That doesn't work. And you know what? Here's the problem. Is the world going to tell you that's what you have a right to do? Because the world is under the sway of the evil one who wants you bitter and angry and separated and hating you people and unforgiving. That's what he wants. Beloved, listen. Could Paul not throw those cards out? He's a Roman citizen. He's being mistreated by the, by the government he belongs to. By both governments he belongs to. And here's what we have. And this is what they say. First of all, he's against their law, which means he's being unbiblical. But please understand something, Beloved. The more you get into the Bible, the more you realize that a lot of what it's called just Christianity or religion or is tradition that you can't find in text. That doesn't necessarily make it bad. It just does not work to the level of Scripture. It's one of the reasons why we really want to be in the Word. Because Jesus had a constant problem with dealing with people's traditions because they were held to the same standard as the scripture. And the people who didn't know scripture well enough weren't really sure which parts were in and which parts, which parts weren't. So all of a sudden, it seems like insignificant things at first, like it's three wise men. The three wise men. And we even have names for them. Funny, in scripture, we only read that there were three gifts given, but we only we read that they're wise men. There's more than one, so there couldn't be one. But we, there could be 300 of them. There could be two they just brought three different gifts. Now, it seems relatively insignificant. The bigger problem is when you start casting people out for things like, well, that guy's got long hair. I don't know about that. That guy's Irish. You know how Irish are. That guy's a drunk. And what happens is, but they might be coming in because they're looking for hope that they've never heard before. They have no, they make no claim to Christ. And this is the first experience they're going to get with Jesus. And you know what it is? We don't want you here because this is what we stand against. And now look at God makes really clear this is sin. But in the end of it all, we all stand before God and say, this is sin. We're going to bring that sin before you. We're going to call it sin with you. And we're going to ask you to forgive us. But we want to know that you're willing to forgive it. 
in a way, by the way, that we're not forgiving at the moment. And I can just tell you, God will take you any way that you are, but he loves you way too much to leave you that way. I love that. Paul said, look at, so could you be known for that? Now look, can I just say, let me just give you three terms on that. And, I, and, and just because I'd like you just to consider this and the terms that I live by, and it's biblical, extra-biblical, and anti-biblical. Biblical means I could find it in Scripture. That's pretty simple. If it find it in Scripture, boom, we're done. Extra-biblical means I can't really find it in Scripture, but I can't find any Scripture that stands against it. So, you're cool either way on it. That's the kind of stuff we shouldn't argue over. Anti-biblical, that's completely against Scripture, in which case we should deny it right away, and that's the end of that conversation. The problem is when religion, when tradition gets to the point where it stands where it becomes unbiblical or anti-biblical, if that makes sense. Like, for instance, and that's what Jesus went against with the religious leaders when he said, you know, you guys are supposed to honor your father and mother. You have a couch they have nothing to sleep on, and you say, I'm going to dedicate it to God and leave it in your house? That's anti-biblical. God says, give that to your folks. Take care of them. But you've now created traditions that keep you from doing what God's actually told you to. And so that's why I say, by the way, in regards to this, if people say you're, oh, you're against the law, are you against the law of Scripture or are you against the law of tradition? On the other side of it, they say he's against, he's a referent. He's not just unbiblical, he's a, he's a referent. I mean, look at what he does with the temple. You know what he did? He brings dirty people into the church. Praise God. If you had a car wash, bring dirty cars. It seems silly to bring clean ones. If you have a hospital, bring sick people. Because bringing well people, they'd be like, why are you wasting my time? And when you have a church that's supposed to be both the wash and the healing, sick and dirty people should be coming in. Now look at, can you be accused of that? There are people in this room, I'm going to tell you, sometimes I just get excited because I know when they show up, I don't know who they're going to be with, but it could, it's going to be fun. Now I'm not talking about, you know, bring in someone that's a wolf or bring in someone that's got a, you know, an AK-47 that's loaded, that's really here to clean house. I'm talking about people who are coming in because they recognize they're sick, they recognize they're dirty, and they want to come clean because that's where we're all at, isn't it? And I realize some of these things, have you ever had someone insult you and it's actually a compliment? Wow, you're really devoted to that God thing. Wow, thank you very much. You really believe that book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you really do. Yeah, thank you. Let someone say, this isn't church, this is like singing love songs to God and reading the Bible. And that's bad. But he's also against Caesar, which means, boy, he's against society. He's antisocial. Oh my goodness, he's unbiblical, irreverent, and antisocial. Funny, because it's probably the terms they would have used against Jesus. Now look at Simple. Bible never tells you to disobey laws because you disagree with them. The Bible says the only time you ever break a law made by man is when it demands that you sin. There's a difference. You're like, well, I don't want to pay taxes because I don't like where some of it goes. We'll pray and vote. But on the other side of it, can I just say that the things that we the only hill we died on was the one where it's like, look, at you have to do this. And the Bible says the opposite. That's a different story. Then they're going to go, wow, they're not known for this. And look at what they're doing. That's very different. Versus there they go grabbing their signs again. Festus, verse 9, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul. And he said, are you willing to go to Jerusalem? 
and there be judged before me concerning these things? Now, Paul, remember, Paul knows that there's still these people, and maybe by this point they've died of starvation. Maybe they had a new group of people. Maybe they decided what they meant by not eating is they wouldn't eat lunch for on Saturdays. Whatever it is, Paul still knows that there's a group of people that want to kill him. So Paul says in verse 10, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat. Remember, the guy's sitting in the judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, and you very well know this. If I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there's nothing in these things in which these men accuse me, no man can deliver me to them because I appeal to Caesar. Every Roman citizen had the right to appeal to the imperial court. Festus, I remind you, this is the guy that's supposed to be the tough guy. When he had conferred with the council, he said, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you'll go. Now after some days, King Agrippa now and Bernice, remember that's his sister slash girlfriend or whatever, came to Caesarea to greet Festus. It's schmooze time. Festus now, when they, when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, there's a certain man left by prison, a prisoner by Felix about whom the chief priest, now look at, this is what we, this is what we get, this is what Festus got out of Paul's defense. Listen, this is a certain guy, a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. For to them I answered, it is not custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets his accusers face to face, and have an opportunity to answer for themselves concerning the charge against them. I'm such a fair guy, is what Festus is saying. Therefore, when they had come together without delay the next day, oh, those ten days I stayed there, forget about that. But the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accuser stood up, they brought no accusation against him as such things as I have supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who died that Paul affirmed to be alive. Did you get it? He's like, you know, I mean, here they were. They were throwing all these accusations against him. I mean, imagine if somebody tries to bring you to court because they don't like the fact that you wear a hat in church. Imagine. Wait a minute. We want to go and we want to take him to the royal courts because David doesn't wear a tie. Because Amina has shorter hair. Can you imagine the court would just like, put on their powdered wigs for a moment and they'd go, you made me put on my powdered wig for this? And that's about as far as you'd get. But now at that point, you can imagine, it's like that could be the end of it. They'd say, I don't know, this whole thing was really just a waste of time. But he says, but you know what, this guy that they're accusing, all he keeps talking about is this Jesus, about how he died and how he confirms that he's alive. You're aware that that's the gospel. The only thing that's left to add is that he died for their sins. And we're going to see that, by the way, in the next chapter when we see Paul, when we're going to see this born out in Paul before Agrippa II. Now, get this. If you are consumed at this moment, if you are consumed at this moment about justice, and I have a right to be, come on, I have a right to be heard, and this is government, and I, you know, come on, now I have some representation here and all of that, you'd be so busy defending yourself, he'd be saying, well, all I know, I kept hearing about Paul is how he's mistreated. He came in and he sang the song. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. You're like, you know what? No one's playing that song here. He's like, look it. If you know, strangely enough, because of Paul's imprisonment, he's been able to preach the gospel to, if you remember, to Felix on several occasions, which includes his bodyguard and the whole royal court. He's been able now to preach the gospel as we see here to Felix. I'm sorry, to Festus. 
soon, by the way, and to Luscious, Lucius, the commander, great name, Luscious, ultimately he'll be able to preach the gospel to Caesar Nero on more than one occasion, all because he's a political prisoner. Strange, the accommodations may not be nice. The travel there is going to be quite rough. But even in all of that, Paul gets to speak before Nero. Now think about how you think. If you could think of one person that's famous right now that you'd want to preach the gospel to, who would it be? Think about it. My next question is, if you actually had audience with him, would you do it? Would you be busy going, oh, um, sign my arm? Whatever it would be. So if you had one moment, now here's the point. What if it was Obama or the Queen or Charles? Someone, some famous singer or writer, actor. And God's like, look at, I'm going to use you to, to speak to him. But it's going to cost you. Is that okay? Is it okay? You go, well, what do you mean? Well, you're going to have to spend some time in prison for it. And you're thinking, no, no, it's really not worth it. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. How many of us would go, yeah, sure, I'd still, I'd still love to do that. You're going to get beat within inches of your life, have to be rescued by the government. And you're going to tell them that you love them and that they love you love that God loves all of them. And then they're going to try to beat you again. They're going to rescue you again. And then for the next few years, you're just going to be tossed around from one prison to the next prison. You're from Pentonville to someplace out of there, to Watts, wherever it be. And then ultimately, after all of that, you're going to take a slave cargo ship from one place to another. It's going to shipwreck. They're going to want to try to kill you. But you've got favor with the commander, so he doesn't really kill you. And then you're going to wind up on, a, on an island, and there you're going to try to actually, well, everyone's just thankful to be alive. You're going to get bit by a snake. You're thinking, oh, come on. And then after all of that, you're going to go and stand before Nero. And you're going to be grounded in your house for two years. No Nintendo, no cable, that's it. Is that going to be okay? Is that, is that enough? If that's, if that's what it would take for you to speak the gospel to the people I've ordained. And can I just, can I just say, and I mean this sincerely, I, I don't know if any of us would say yes. I mean, it's a lot easier to think here in this room where it's comfortable. I mean, imagine if the Lord just said that there's a guy standing out right at Camden Town Station. He's about to beatbox for the next four hours, but he's going to take a 10-minute break. And in that 10-minute break, I want you to go and talk to him. Which one of us would start with the two words or three words? But it's cold. But I, I didn't bring my scarf. I didn't bring my heavy jacket. I tell you what, Lord, I'll, I'll make you this deal. I'll sit at Nando's, and if you bring him in, I'll talk to him. I'll even buy him a chicken. Would you do that? And you know, can I just say, honestly, I think really what's missing is sacrifice. Because sacrifice is what happens when people are just amazed and thankful to be given grace. Which means, and again, I'm not just even, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me. Sincerely. I really, really don't know how much sacrifice there is even in my heart, to be honest. I'm mean, like looking out for me. And I'm looking out for my rights and what's, what's in it for me. And, and it makes me sick to think that, but I'm just being honest. And, I, and I'll be honest, I don't want it. I really don't want it. 
I want to be the, and I, I felt like somewhere when I was younger, somewhere I was that kind of person more, and maybe I'm just delusional as I get older. Maybe I'm looking back with rose-colored glasses, but I feel like there was a time when I would have happily done anything for anyone. And somewhere I found a lot more things that would have been convenient excuses. A family, that's a convenient excuse. You get older, that's a convenient excuse. And I've like, I have a docket full of convenient excuses as if somehow God's like, oh, oh, okay. It's been a rough day. You're tired. You haven't really eaten. You haven't slept much. Okay, sure. Well, you don't want to... But if the Lord really said it, would I go? Would I be willing to, to endure the hardship? Paul called himself an ambassador in chains in Ephesians 6.20. He says in Philippians 1.13 that because he was in prison, and this is later when he'll actually be in Rome, he says that everyone knows he's there for Christ. When we look at the book of Philemon, verse 10, listen to this verse. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. Do you get that? Because Paul was in prison, Philemon got saved, is what that means. In, in 2 Timothy 2.9 it says, when Paul suffers trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, the word of God is still not chained, though. Never forget that. And then he says in Hebrews 13, 3, that we are to remember prisoners as if chained with them. But here's the funny part. Paul is chained between two prisoners. No, they're guards, right? And because Paul is chained between two guards at any given moment, Paul can't go anywhere, can he? And you'd think, what a chain. Poor guy's chained, right? So he goes... Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life. Now who's the captive audience? Which guy wants to gnaw off their arm to get away? This guy goes, shut up or I'll punch you. And you go, okay, let me tell you about Jesus. And then four hours from now, there's a new batch. Let me tell you about Jesus, what he did in my life. And he's like, oh, that guy warned me about you, the guy who just left. Let me tell you about Jesus and what he's done in my life. Well, you're not going anywhere anyways. We've got four hours. I've got enough time to tell you my whole testimony. And then when we're done, I could turn around and tell you, and you could check and see if I said anything different. And at the end of it, then, now that you've had time to think about it, I'll ask you, you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And then now we'll go back to you. What about you? Since he did, what about you? You want to accept Jesus? Cool. All right, next four hours. And it's like, let me tell you about Jesus. How about you? Have you heard yet? Have those guys, there's some, by the way, the guys that just left, they just gave their life to Jesus. You can ask them what that's like. Do you see what happens? Because I'm so not wrapped up in me at this moment, strangely enough, those moments become opportunities. Every moment somebody shigs you a little bit. They throw that shig in you a little bit. Ah, I'm going to shig you. The moment they start doing that kind of thing, all of a sudden you go, hey, 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 hey. And people go, oh, you look just like someone else, like everyone else I know. But the moment you're like, you know what? I'm not going to fire back. Because to be honest, everybody else does that and look at where it got them. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pray for you. And I'm not going to even pray the Davidic prayer. Break his teeth in his mouth. Well, I'm praying for you, bro. I'm going to say, you know what, Lord? That guy's no worse than I was. And I look at this and I think, beloved, this guy looks and he's like, you know, Agrippa shows up and, and, and Festus is beside himself. Remember, this is the tough guy. And he looks and he goes, I don't know what to do. 
this guy's in prison, and it's like the Jewish people hate him, they want to kill him, and you know, you're in here, and I know you're kind of a Jewish guy, you're kind of Jewy or something, aren't you? And so, you know, what do I do? And it's like, I don't know, they kind of laid all these charges, but none of them were like laws that he's broken. I don't know what to do with that. And then all that, I, I, all he wants to talk about is this guy that died and rose again. What do you do with that? And it says then in verse 20, because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged by these matters. Like it's an innocent thing, but remember how this whole thing was a setup and he knew it. Verse 21, so when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept until I should send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, well, I would all, I also would like to hear this man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. The next day, Agrippa and his sister, girlfriend, had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city. At Festus's command, Paul was brought in. Festus says, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found out that he had committed nothing deserving of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, and that's because the first Caesar's name was Caesar, the second name Caesar's name was Augustus, and it's kind of like one of those Spanish families where it's like, what's your name? It's like, my name is Anigo Montoya, you know, like it's like 16 names, and you just know their family line. Killing Augustus is every Caesar, and this one happens to be Nero. I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I have something to write. For it seemed to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not specify the charges against him. I would agree with you, that's unreasonable. It would seem to me unreasonable that he's been in prison for two years. Plus. It would seem to me unreasonable that he's been beat within inches of his life. It would seem to be unreasonable that people keep trying to get him into places where he could be ambushed. But nonetheless, since we've had him here for these couple of years and we have no idea what to do with this guy, we figured we might as well actually figure out if we can come up with a charge. And not just Jewish people hate him. So, here you go, Caesar. Now, as we bring this to a close, because then what's going to happen? Paul's going to have to speak his defense. And he has the whole next chapter. Beautiful. And by the way, can I just throw out this little thing? We're still looking at potentially going in a year to Israel. And one of the places we go is exactly where Paul does this defense. Exactly where we're at in text. We have to stand there and God willing try to find somebody that's crazy enough to try to memorize the text and stand up on stage and then we can all attack them. Anyways, but here's the point as we go to prayer. First of all, if you are a believer here in this room, somebody that has accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, not just like you believe in magic or yourself or fairy dust or whatever, fairies, but if you have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for your sins, his resurrection, and affirm that he's alive because he lives in you, then there's no room for us to start demanding rights we don't have anymore. There's no more rights for us to be bitter. 
and start demanding for the world to be just. Because the bottom line is, can I just say, the world's not going to be fair. It's never been fair since the fall. Here's the good news. It's also temporary, and sooner or later you're checking out, and then it's more than fair. And I guarantee you, for all the mistreatment you'll get on this side, there'll be grace treatment on the other side in abundance, and it won't compare. The scale's just going to do this and stay there because for all the grace I experience for eternity, this, and it tells us that these current little shovels, these light afflictions is what they're called, according to scripture, could not possibly be compared to the weight of glory that will be revealed later on. And so the idea is, is that, man, when we look at that, but if our mind is just stuck in here and now, we're going to go, man, come on now, I demand this, I need better this. And I, no, look, at it. if you can make a change, make a change. I mean, Paul says, look it, I can appeal to Caesar, I'm going to appeal to Caesar. But on the other side of that, he's not going to go, but they're going to go, well, no. Then he's going to go, well, I tell you what, then I'm going to burn you all down. We didn't do that. Because if he did that, here's the hard thing. This is a simple note. It's really hard to preach Jesus to people you've just killed. That sounds silly, but think about it. Because history is riddled with people we wanted to kill instead of preach to. And the bottom line is the person we want dead is the person who dies the moment they accept Jesus. You're aware of that, right? So can I just say, if we could pray as believers, as those who have trusted in Christ, those who have, that God would tonight actually make us those vehicles of forgiveness he intended, vehicles of freedom, and actually create a different kind of relationship than the one we may have right now with people. One more, actually, the challenge of there be anything is how to outbless the other. Not because we're better or anything, but because, to be honest, we don't want to score keep. We just want to be vehicles of grace. We've gotten more grace than we can handle. We should be handing it out. Because I've learned this, that God doesn't run out of it. He's abundant in mercy and grace. And if he's abundant in it, that means he'll never run out. It isn't like, God, I need more grace. And God's like, oh, well, I'll get paid next week. Come back. God always has more, so give it out. And then you get, you know what you get then? Fresh grace is what you get. Hand out the stale stuff. All right, anyways. But lastly, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, tonight's your opportunity to accept that gift. You deserved hell. I deserve hell. But Jesus died on the cross so that you could actually be set free and stand innocent before him. And boy, you know what? He'd really love that to start now. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for... um, I remember when this room felt cold, and perhaps for some people it kind of does, but once we step outside, it'll feel really warm in here. And I want to thank you, Lord, for this chapter, how this night, on this night, in January of 2013, on this night, how you have chosen to bring us into this room. And as you bring us into this room, you brought us in here so that we tonight could hear the challenge tonight to genuinely not be demanding rights you've not given us, but to cash in on the grace that you give us and to spend that on others. That we can make our life as Paul would say, to live as Christ and to die as gain, not to live as me and to die as was going to be awful. And Lord, I just pray for, for ourselves. I pray for myself, Lord, because I know somewhere in this, if I don't embrace your grace like I should, I won't have a heart to sacrifice at all. I'll be too busy trying to figure out how to stack things for me. But Lord, I want that sacrificial heart, that one that puts other people before me. And isn't busy trying to figure out how to score keep and count costs on things like that. If you tell me to do it, Lord, I don't even want to ask anything other than how. And you just tell me, lead me, Lord, and I want to be obedient like that. I really do want to give you everything because you gave it all to me, Lord. And I don't want to just give, Lord, out of abundance. 
As you look at the widow and say that she gave out of her necessity, I want to be a person like that, Lord. And Lord, so I just pray for every person here that you would start, Lord, something and not just make us revolting, but make us a revolution. A revolution of people who like love the way that you call love in Scripture, not just feel warm to people and hug them. And I just want to thank you for some of the examples I've seen this week, Lord. People that are willing to get up early and drive people to airports and who are willing to get to places and set things up, Lord, without any applause from anyone else. Who, Lord, work for what it's worth, even, you know, that, that work on computers to try to get things working so people can find places and, and see slides and, and do things. Lord, I just want to thank you for the stuff that often goes unpronounced, Lord, and unapplauded, but still, Lord, it's... But I know, Lord, that, that for each of us, I just want to be able to say, Lord, that wherever you say, however you say, that we could genuinely say, take all of me. And if you say go, I will go. And if you say, I'll stay. Whatever it is, Lord. So, Father, tonight I just pray that you would start a brand new revolution in our hearts. One that is freed from the trappings of what we feel like we have a right to, to be a jerk or to be spiteful or, or just even be grumpy because of something, Lord. And we're looking for excuses instead of deliverance. Lord, I don't want that anymore for me or for any of our flock here. So, Lord, I just pray right now that you would deliver us from that and make us people, Lord, who who rise above that. And if there be anyone in this room or at the sound of this voice who is not sure, or they're sure they haven't, accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, their Savior. And tonight they recognize that there is more than just showing up at church or doing a Bible study or, or doing some kind of catechism or whatever, but it's accepting the gift of God's Son, the payment for their sins, the unjust treatment of Jesus the Christ, so that we could stand innocent because our guilt was placed upon him, the innocent one. And in that right now, if you recognize that, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And if you agree at the end, I ask you to say, Amen. Confidently, and, and, and in doing so, what you're saying is, I agree, let that prayer be my prayer, let those words be mine. And here it is, God, I confess to you, I'm a sinner. And my sin makes me guilty before you, and that guilt must be punished if you are really a righteous judge, and you are. But you and your perfect love for me sent your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, who was tempted in every way, yet without sin, never deserving any punishment, but receiving all of our punishment, so that all my sins could be punished. And in that then, rose again from the grave, as he literally died, literally rose. And so I literally say, here I am, I'm yours. I accept Jesus' gift as a payment for my sins, for my guilt, for the penalty. And now I ask you to adopt me as you say you want to. Make me yours. Reinvent me. And make me everything you intend for me to be. As I commit this to you now, Jesus, I am yours in your name. Amen.